Thank you, Will. Thank you, band. Uh, man, thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you to those of you watching online. It's always good to see you uh, as well. Uh, drop us a comment this morning. Let us know who's watching. Uh, it's always fun to go back and see who our extended church family is that we don't necessarily see in the room with us every Sunday. So uh, today, you may have heard in the intro video, we are going to be talking about uh, the minor prophets for the next four weeks. It's a new series called Return, and that's actually a misnomer. It's not a new series. This is a series that started last February, and if you're interested to see the first four of the minor prophets, go back into the archives on YouTube or Facebook, and you can check out those four messages from last February where we started this journey to talk through the minor prophets in the Bible. Uh, this is always something that is uh, fun uh, to go and look at some things that we don't always look at every single uh, week in a church. Minor prophets can get kind of ignored from time to time. So I feel like before we ever start, we need to do a little bit of definition of terms. So when we talk prophet, um, a prophet is, unfortunately for those of us that are kids of the 90s and 80s, uh, I have this picture of Miss Cleo. Call Miss Cleo and tell your troubles to her. Um, you know, the original 1-900 number at the bottom of the television screen, that is, uh, that is not what a prophet is. I think it gets that rap because when we read our New Testament, we see about prophecies that have been fulfilled. We see uh, things that God foretold through the prophets, uh, especially concerning the life, birth, and, and narrative of Jesus. Um, but a prophet is simply someone who has a message from God. A prophet is someone, uh, and a prophecy is a direct message from God. All right, so when you think prophet, don't think fortune teller, think messenger. Uh, think someone who has something to say from God as God's mouthpiece. And then we think of the word minor. All right, and, and so when we think minor, I think of, you know, you got Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball. I've got a Braves hat. I actually see two or three people in here wearing Braves hats, which is pretty cool. Uh, and you've got your minor league baseball team, which is Trash Panda. And I saw somebody with a Trash Panda shirt on in the first service. Um, nobody... You know, that's, that's playing baseball. I don't think anybody has childhood dreams of growing up one day and playing for the Rocket City Trash Pandas, right? But a lot of people have dreams of growing up and playing for the Braves or playing for the Angels or whatever major league team is their favorite. You see, the minor league is just a stepping stone to the major leagues. Uh, for those of you that are musically minded, you've got major chords and you've got minor chords. And major chords are bright and cheerful and they keep the song happy and pleasant. And then minor chords come along and they're dark and they create tension that has to be resolved in the song. Right. Minor prophets are not lesser prophets, okay? Uh, so don't think that. They're not minor because the message they bring is less significant. They're not minor because they're less important. They're not minor because they're less inspired by God. They are purely minor because they are shorter. The books themselves are shorter. When you think of books like Daniel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, those are some long, exhaustive, prophetic books in the Bible. When you think of books like Obadiah, like Haggai, those books are one and two chapters, and so that's why when we talk the book of Jonah this morning, we're going to be talking about a four-chapter book. All right, so I want to take just a pause here, do a quick illustration. Uh, I need one adult volunteer, any adult volunteer will work, uh, to join me on stage for a brief demonstration. No, okay, that's fine. Uh, you actually helped prove my point. That was the illustration. Uh, how many people in the room would say, I'm quite comfortable in my seat, that's why I did not join you on stage? How many people would say, I do not like being in front of crowds? How many people would say, you didn't even tell me what we're volunteering for, so of course I'm not going to say yes. we got one right in the back, the youth pastor, the youth pastor of all people, the one who always gets volunteers for doing crazy things on stage. He knows what's going on. 
The illustration was actually just to see if anybody would come and they would get a ten dollar Dick Clay gift card. But now I have a birthday present for Sarah. Yay! Yes. I actually have two. First service didn't take it either. So <laughs> I was prepared, uh, and instead of turning that receipt in, I'm just going to give them to Sarah. She can feed two people now at Chick Fil A instead of just one. Yeah. Um, when we read the Bible, when we read the minor prophets, a lot of times I feel like, and I did this when I was a younger Christian, we just turn and we open the, open the books of the Bible. We're like, all right, I'm going to read this, and I'm going to see what the words say. And, and I think, especially when we're dealing with minor prophets, there are some questions that we need to ask to understand what are we actually reading. All right, because out of context, the words on the page could become quite meaningless. Okay, They're spill-inspired words of God. I don't mean to... To trivialize that, I'm just saying that when we don't see the full picture, sometimes things get lost. So the first question that we need to ask when we get ready to read a passage is, when was this written? All right, And when this is written makes a huge difference in what the passage actually means. So we're going to pull up a timeline here. This is something that Pastor Allen created last year when we did the, um, the, the return series. And so we're, what we're going to see is the book of Jonah is going to show up way over here on the left on this timeline that's on the screen right there. Uh, in the green squares, Jonah is the far left square uh, that we see. Uh, sometime around, you see the, the brownish bar at the bottom, sometime around 100 to 775 B.C. Um, the biggest contextual clue of this is going to be that Jonah prophesies before, you see that red bar uh, in the northern kingdom, before 722 B.C. when Samaria was destroyed. Samaria being the northern kingdom of Israel. I'm going way Bible drill here, but I want to give you some context. We see the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom up there. Um, this is the split kingdom of Israel. Uh, remember back through the period of the judges, Israel was a theocracy. We answered directly to God, uh, or we Israel direct, answered directly to God. Um, and then they said, hey, we need a king, God. And God's like, I don't know that you really want that. Um, they, they insisted, and God said, fine, whatever you want. If you think your way is better, that's fine. Israel made it through three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. And then Solomon's son inherited the divided kingdom, where the northern kingdom completely rebelled against the southern kingdom and said, we're going to make our own country. And the southern kingdom said, that's fine, y'all have it. All right, so this perfect, uh, or this, this chosen child country of God became two countries of God um, back before this timeline uh, picks up. So again, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, you see both of them end. Uh, one of them in 722, the other one in 586. Um, so they did not last, they did not endure. Um, but there are passages that we will get to in future weeks that talk about the remnant that God has uh, in store for these kingdoms. All right. And so what I want us to understand is this all happened sometime around 800. Some people say 750, definitely before the northern kingdom of Israel fell. So the second question that we need to ask when we look at this is who is the direct audience? Who is God directly speaking this message to? And when we talk prophets, uh, typically we have prophets to either the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Israel. So their message is directed directly toward either Israel or Judah. Okay, When you hear Israel and Samaria, those are inter interchangeable terms. When you hear Judah and southern kingdom, those are interchangeable terms. Typically you're trying to figure out which one of those kingdoms is the prophet ministering to. Jonah is unique in that he is not ministering to either one. He is ministering to the Assyrian Empire, the evil Assyrian Empire that is set out to conquer the entire world, all right? The next-door neighbor that is trying to seize my land. That is who Jonah's prophecy is to. 
Jonah is also unique in that the prophecy is literally five Hebrew words. That is all that we have of his prophecy in the Bible. All right, so now that we know where, uh, who is the direct audience, here's the easy question. You need to ask, who is the main character of this passage? So in Jonah, the main character of Jonah is God. Yeah, as is the main character of every passage you read in Scripture. So as we see what God is doing in Jonah, you need to phrase it that way. It's not what did Jonah do, how did Jonah pray, how did Jonah deliver his message. It is what is God doing as Jonah went here. What is God doing in Jonah's life to redirect him? What is God doing in Jonah's life to use the message that he has? Okay. So once you realize that God is the main character, you need to ask this question, which is what timeless truths about God do we see revealed in this passage? Because prophecies... There, the prophecy that we're going to read is in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. That is not an accurate prophecy for today. Okay, 40 days from today, Nineveh will not be destroyed. Or it may. But we don't have a message from God saying that that's going to happen. All right, We have a message saying back in 790-something, then in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. So instead of looking at that and saying, well, that just doesn't apply, we need to look at it with lenses that say, what, is, what do we see about God and how he acted then that are timeless truths about how he acts today, how he works in our lives today? So as we start to unpack Jonah, there's a couple other things I want us to look at. Uh, one is I was very excited, very excited when Pastor Allen told me that I was going to be teaching from Jonah because literally this is one of the two minor, modern, minor prophets that I have any sort of familiarity with at all. Um, this one in Hosea. Had he said, Jeremiah, you're preaching on Habakkuk, I might have found another church to be at this morning, quite frankly. Uh, I, yeah, I know, I would have studied and figured it out. But Jonah, I know a little bit about Jonah. Um, Alan talked about the quintessential Joseph in the coat of many colors children's church story. If that's number one, this one has to be in the top five somewhere, okay? We've heard the story of Jonah. We're familiar with the story of Jonah. Those of you that have been in church any amount of time know about Jonah and the great fish, um, spitting Jonah up on dry land, okay? Um, but then this became a problem because there is so much in Jonah to unpack that 30 minutes is not enough time to do it. So I also became frightened. So I want to show you a couple of pictures. Here's the first one. Somebody tell me where this is. That is Lake Mead. Uh, from probably from the Hoover Dam, quite honestly. Um, you see, and actually you see some watermarks there, right? You see how the bottoms of the rocks are, are a different color than the tops of the, of the rocks? Um, there's actually, Lake Mead is getting smaller and smaller. Uh, this is some of the evidence of that. You can look and physically see how the water is decreasing. Um, now, let's show the next picture. Somebody tell me what that is. That is also Lake Mead. Okay, you see the water line in there? You do? Yeah, you got good eyes uh, because I, you can barely faintly see it uh, working its way up through there, um, but it is not as apparent as, go back to the last picture, not as apparent as looking at it like this. See, there's, and that's actually quite beautiful to me, uh, the way that looks up close. Um, you can see details that you cannot see when you're zoomed out, but if you zoom back out, you can see beautiful details of all the mountains from overhead view uh, that you cannot see when you're standing right up close. You see, when we read the Bible, it's always important to read the Bible in context, okay? There are things that you can see about a passage by reading five verses out of the Bible 
and reading in intensively to look at those. But we also need to zoom out and get the big context of what God is doing. And as you study, honestly, I would recommend you do both at the same time. I would recommend you read the whole and then go back and read the parts to go and see what God is doing. Big picture and then small picture, how is God working individually to make that big picture happen? So as we start in the book of Jonah, we're going to see the theme throughout the book of Jonah is that Jonah is a God who teaches mercy. All right, this is a God who shows us mercy. That's the timeless truth that we see out of God's character all throughout this book. God teaches mercy. And the first thing in your notes that we see how God teaches mercy is in his plan. God's plan isn't always just about here. Okay, God's plan isn't always just about here. We see that in Jonah verse, chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. Again, I already said most of the prophets were prophets to either the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Israel. But God tells Jonah, I want you to get up and walk away from here and go minister to this group of people that I've set out for you to minister to. Now, we're going to fast forward through the parts of the story we're most familiar with. Jonah gets on a boat, tries to go over to the west coast of Spain, which is the farthest part of the known world that he could have tried to escape to at the time, instead of going to the east, to this city that is in present-day Mosul, Iraq. All right, so from Israel to the northeast is, is Nineveh, to the far west is Tarshish, where Jonah tries to flee. Tries to flee. Um, he gets on a boat, they get into a storm, Eventually, the folks on the boat realize that he's the reason for the storm. He admits he's the reason for the storm. They throw him off the boat, and the Bible says, not happenstance, but God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah and then transport him back to dry land. All right, a few things that I can point out. One, imagine the inside of that fish. All right, I don't think it's like the children's Bible that I read to my kids where Jonah is propped up against one of the ribs, just hanging on to some rib meat with a lantern in there, looking for a fish to come through the clean water that's channeling through the stomach. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think it was like the inside of a stomach. I think it was pitch dark, but I think all four of his other senses were well intact, and that had to be terrifying. I think for three days, Jonah was terrifying to a point that brought him to the repentance that we saw. The smells, oh my stars, the smell of that stomach. The sounds of the inner bowels of a fish. Heaven forbid he got a taste of anything. My goodness. Man, cannot imagine that. That's what God used for three days to transport Jonah back. And Jonah, God didn't transport Jonah to Nineveh, right? And we know that because there's no beach in Mosul, Iraq, okay? There's nowhere for that fish to spit Jonah right there. No, I actually think God used that fish to transport Jonah pretty much back to where he started because in verse th chapter 3 verse 1 check out what the bible says then the lord spoke to jonah a second time get up and go to the great city of nineveh do you ever have those moments for your kids those of you who are parents in here i had that moment yesterday with my kids kids won't y'all go and pick those sticks up and put them out by the road okay after 30 minutes of playing outside in the yard, they come back in, get ready for their dinner, and they get one bite of summer sausage in their mouth, and I said, uh-uh, go pick up the stick. Um, I think that's what happened with, with God and Jonah. God gave this, it's the same message he gives in chapter 1, verse 1. Get up and go to the city of Nineveh. 
He doesn't change what he instructs him. Verse 3, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command. All right, There's a verse that's missing in my translation. It may be missing in yours as well. I would really like to see the verse that says, as soon as the struggling with this uh, microphone, let's put it out here and see if that helps. I would really like to see the verse that says, Jonah walked back into the ocean for about 10 minutes to wash off. I don't see that in my translation. I would really love to see that in my translation. I just don't see it. But we do see that Jonah was obedient. Boy, howdy. After all of that, I would like to think that Jonah would have been obedient. He went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. And on the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. That's the beginning and the end of the prophecy. Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Some writers have actually said that he was probably doing this half-heartedly because he didn't really want to be there. Forty days, y'all be destroyed. Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Hey, forty days, Nineveh will be destroyed. And all Jonah can think of is, I've got 39 days to get out of here, so I've got a safe view from, for the mushroom cloud that's about to appear over my back shoulder. But guess what happened? The people of Nineveh believed God's message. They believed it. This half-hearted message from this disobedient messenger, and the people repent. From the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Jonah didn't come with flashy words. Jonah didn't come declaring he's coming in the name of the Lord. Jonah simply comes and does exactly what God tells him to do with no extra effort involved. And God uses that to create repentance across the entire city. Wow. So God's plan, is, God's plan to show his mercy isn't always just about where I am. So I need to be willing to go wherever he sends. God's plan for mercy isn't always about where I'm at. So I need to be willing to go wherever he sends. This is, this is the idea that 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 Jesus communicated in his last words before he ascended back into heaven in Acts 1 chapter 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Wow, it disappeared. Man. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses to all four of these. It, listen, church, it's our job to reach people in all four of those areas right here at home, in the region, in the nation, and throughout the world. Different ones of us are going to be used to reach different parts of those uh, demographics. But collectively, it is all our jobs to make sure that all of that happens, that we are actively engaged in reaching people. That's why that's our mission strategy, to reach people in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost with our four missions partners. So God's plan is not just about here. And God's plan to teach us about mercy isn't always just about right now. All right, we're going to pull in some context clues to talk about this a little bit. But the second point in your notes, God's plan for us is not always just about right now. All right, so we talked about how we knew that God delivered this message prior to the fall of, of Samaria in 722. We're going to fill in the context of that in 2 Kings chapter 17, where the Bible says the king of Assyria invaded the entire land. And for three years, he besieged the city of Samaria. And finally, in the ninth year of King Hosea's reign, which we know to be 722 B.C., Samaria fell, and the people of Israel were exiled to Assyria. How devastating 
for the people that were once God's prized possession. They still were. For them to be exiled to this place. They settled in the colonies of Hala along the banks of the Habel River in Gazan in the city of the Medes. And then we see another interaction with Nineveh about six years later, around 716 B.C. In Isaiah chapter 37, verses 36 and 37. Context here is the same Assyria that had just conquered the northern kingdom has now come and they are ready to invade the southern kingdom of Israel. And check out what the Bible says happened. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went to the capital of Nineveh and stayed there. So a couple of questions run through my mind as I read these passages. All right, we see how God was doing things in Jonah that weren't necessarily just for that day and time. One, I think he prolonged the invasion of the northern kingdom until a date that he had appointed to accomplish exactly what he needed to accomplish in that day with his rebellious people. The second thing, I think about the questions that the people involved might have asked. One question being, for the, for, the, for the northern kingdom of Israel, the Sumerians, is when they are exiled to Assyria, is it possible that they looked back on the story of what Jonah had done 40, 50 years ago and realized that God had worked in this place where they were 40, 50 years ago to give them hope that that same God was still going to be faithful to work in their lives right where they were, even though it wasn't as comfortable as what they had, to know that God could still do a work in their present situation. He proved that 40 or 50 years ago. I think, he, I think they did. I think that probably came up around the dinner table as they were in these scattered out regions of Assyria. And the second question that comes to my mind is with the kingdom of Judah and the invasion. Whenever King Sennacherib looked around and saw 185,000 dead with no conflict, they just wake up and see his, his, basically his entire army laying to waste. Do you think he looked around and realized right then who he was dealing with? That he was dealing with God Almighty at that moment. Had, he not, had God not done what he had done through Jonah, perhaps, perhaps the king sends reinforcements and continues to seize the cities. We don't know. I think that probably ran through his mind, knowing that God had done this in his homeland before, and that introduced this man. It planted the seed that he remembered as that happened. You know what? I know who I'm dealing with here. I'm dealing with the Lord Almighty. I've seen what he has done before, or I've heard of what he has done before, and, and I'm going to get out of Dodge while I can. I think that's probably what happened. I think those two things... God used Jonah 50, 60 years earlier to, to deliver this message that, that set the course for something that was about to happen later in history. See, God's plan isn't always just about right now, so I need to be willing to do what God has set out to be done today. All right? I don't need to have to understand everything that's happening for me to be able to act on what God is doing. There's a couple of passages that, that spell this out pretty well. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34 says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today is enough trouble for today. You do what you need to do today. Don't, don't, don't get caught up in what's happening tomorrow. And then Psalm 119, 105 has the beautiful picture. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. That, that idea of a flashlight being put to where we can see one to two steps out in front of us, wherever we're walking. I don't have to see the whole path dark at night. I need to be able to see a couple of steps in front of me to know that my next step is safe. My next step is a good step to take. That's the guidance. That's the direction that the Lord gives us. You know, anybody tell me, y'all know what I'm holding up in my hand? It's a checker. Yeah, it's a checker. I, I didn't grow up sophisticated like some of you chess players. 
but I did grow up playing checkers, and not in Cracker Barrel. I was 12 before I got introduced to Cracker Barrel. I played checkers around the table with Daddy, and uh, I, got, I got beat a lot. Uh, I don't remember how old I was before I could finally beat Dad in a game of checkers. But this checker, what's the key to successful checkers? What's the key to successful chess playing? Anybody, anybody know? You know your next move. You're, you're looking two, three, four moves down the road with, with the moves that you're making, right? So when I move this checker in some spot, it's not about what this checker is doing in that spot. It's about some grand picture that I'm trying to set my opponent up to fall into a trap that I'm laying, all right? I want to be able to, maybe I'm sacrificing checkers to set up a double or triple jump somewhere down the road because I see that they've got themselves exposed for that. Now, we need to understand that in, in God's grand scheme of things, we're not the checker player. We're the checker. We're the checker. We're the one that God is moving here and there for him to be able to do with us what he needs to do with us to accomplish his grand scheme, which Genesis 50-20 would tell us is the saving of many lives. That's what God is about, and God uses us to, to accomplish that as a grand checker player, all right, of sorts. It's not up to the checker to understand what the plan is. The checker just has to go where the player puts it. That's what we need to be willing to do. As God moves us, as God is telling us where to go on his checkerboard, we don't have to understand what his plan is. We just need to slide right where he has told us to be to accomplish what he has set out to be accomplished, not only by us, but in his grand narrative of time. Okay, So we see that God's plan is not only for here. We see that God's plan is not only for now. Probably the most difficult part of this, God's plan for me isn't just about me. Boy, is there anything that people my age and younger need to hear than that. God's plan for my life is not just about me. It's not just about me. We see Jonah's going to give us some insight as to why he fled away from, from going to the people of Nineveh. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. And to give you the context to back up this, uh, as soon as Jonah delivers the message, the people repented. The king of Assyria declared a fast amongst all the people. So not only did the people voluntarily repent, but now they were under a mandatory forced repentance time for the entire kingdom from an area that had to been totally devoid of the gospel. The king declares repentance, and then the last verse of chapter 3 says, God relented and allowed the city to continue. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah, the Bible says, This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. Why did Jonah flee? Look at verse 2. Jonah's going to quote Deuteronomy 4.31 about what he knows about God. Jonah complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. I didn't want to go here because I knew what you would do. I knew what you were capable of, O oh Lord. I knew that you would bring about repentance to my mortal enemies, this country that is trying to take over the entire world, including our home. I knew that you would do that, and that's why I said no. And then verse 4, the Lord answers, Jonah, 
is it right for you to be angry about this? I think God is being very merciful with Jonah as he entertains this discussion, quite frankly. Jonah doesn't answer God immediately. Jonah does not give an answer to this question that God asks. Instead, Jonah decides he's going to go and pout. He runs to the east side of the city, sets up camp, and the Bible says that the Lord appointed a great leafy tree to keep him cool and shaded as he pouted. And then God appointed a worm to eat that tree. And then God appointed a scorching east wind to come and make Jonah miserable in his pouting. And Jonah got upset again. Boy, go figure. So in verse 9, God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because this plant died? And Jonah says, Yes, it is. Enough to die. I'm so mad. I could die. You killed my shade tree, God. I want to die. And the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, but you didn't do anything to put it there. It came and it died quickly. It came and it died quickly. You didn't do anything about that. And then verse 11, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? God says, look, I know you don't care about these people, but I do. I know you don't love the people of your enemies, but I do. I know you don't want anything to do with Nineveh, but I do. I created them in my image, and I love them just like I love you. And I want them to experience my blessing just like I want you to experience my blessing. And they are a part of my plan just like you are a part of my plan, Jonah. Yes, I have a right to care about them. And you just need to do what I've sent you out to do. Because, Jonah, this isn't just about you. This is about 120,000 people that just repented. This isn't just about you. You know, I'm going to share with you. Sarah and I went to Las Vegas this past summer on on mission with our partner, Favor City Church. Um, They're doing fantastic work out there, by the way. And, And we got to see some of the sights of Vegas. Some of those pictures of Lake Mead, those are fantastic. As we're flying over 45 minutes of desert just to see that beautiful green oasis show up. Uh, man, it was so pretty to look out the airplane and see uh, this, this man-made lake uh, that, that God has allowed to be placed right there in the middle of the desert. It was so beautiful. But once we got down on city level, I'm going to tell you, I told Sarah this, I told a couple people that went with us on the trip, if we don't have any church business there, I don't want to ever go back. The things that we saw, the spiritual darkness that we saw in that city, those bright lights can't cover up. People are running there to hide. People are running there to get away. People people are running there broken trying to find hope. They're trying to find life. They're trying to find love. They're looking in the wrong places. They're looking everywhere except where they need to be looking. I'm so thankful that we've got partners like Favor City Church out there trying to reach that place for the gospel and the whole Hope Church network that's in Vegas, trying to spread the gospel like a flame throughout the city of Las Vegas. I'm so thankful for those partners that are there doing that in a place that I don't want to be. But listen, if, if we get a call tomorrow from, from Pastor Joseph that says, Joseph Gibbons at Favor City that says, man, we, we need some help, we're going to entertain that and we're going to find a way to put together a team that can go out there and meet whatever need they have. Because they're doing God's work there, just like we're doing God's work here. Yeah, but I mean, those people, they got themselves in that situation. I don't have to go and fix it. You need to tell them about the love of God. Well, but, I mean, I'm not the one that made that decision. I'm aware of that. It's not about me. 
I need to go and spread God's love to that group of people. We need to be willing to adopt the mindset of Christ. When the when Bible tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9 that God is willing that nobody should perish. That's, that's God's plan. That's why he was so compassionate about the city of Nineveh. He doesn't delight in destruction. He is slow to get angry and compassionate and merciful. The Bible tells us uh, in your notes, it's not always about me, so I need to be willing to share God's love with anyone. I need to be willing to share God's love with anyone. Matthew chapter 25 paints this as a parable of, of Jesus. It's two different people. Uh, one of them has gone out feeding and clothing the hungry, and one of them has been spending a lot of time in church, ignoring the needs of the hungry. All right, And so he meets with one of them, and in verse 40 that says, The king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, whenever you fed, whenever you clothed, whenever you entertained, the least of one of these, you did it to me. That's Jesus saying this. When did you minister to me? Anytime you ministered to one of the least of my people out here, you did it to me. And in verse 45, there's a guy that spent all his time being churchy. And the, and the Bible says, and the king said, I will tell you the truth. When you refused to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. So Jesus is very clear about what he thinks about the people that we don't like. Okay? Jesus is crystal clear on what he thinks about the people that we don't enjoy being around. He loves them, and he died for them too. And he wants his gospel to go out to those people as well. Yeah, I mean, I don't really enjoy being around them. Listen, it's not about me. Yeah, but I don't even have kids yet. And my kids are grown. I don't need to serve in the children's ministry. It's not about me and what I like. Yeah, but I served in the student ministry when I had kids. Now it's somebody else's turn to do that. It's not, it's not about me. My, my, my ninth and 10th grade Sunday school teacher would say, when my kids get old enough, yeah, I'll serve in the student ministry. But now, I don't have time for that. No, it's not about me. Yeah, but I don't like waking up two hours early to serve breakfast for the football team or for the teachers or for the band. It's not about what I like. Yeah, but I don't feel like I'm in a place where I can make a commitment to serve on a team right now. I just can't do that. You know, church, clean the church once a month or keep the grounds looking good. I just don't feel like I'm in a place where I can commit like that. It's not about how I feel. Yeah, but I don't, I'm, I'm pretty tired on Wednesday nights. I don't feel like participating in a small group. It's not about what I feel like. Yeah, but I think there's enough needs here in the local community that we don't need to be spending all this time and money investing in places like Tuscaloosa and Las Vegas and, and the international missions partners that we're, that we're trying to, 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 to secure. Well, that's great. Start meeting those needs, and while you're at it, realize that it's not about me and what I want to participate in. Yeah, but millennials, I've got some financial goals that I would like to accomplish. I'd like to be debt-free in the next three to five years, and then we can start talking about sacrificial giving, if that's okay. It's not about my goals, y'all. Yeah, but what are my coworkers going to say if I start talking about Jesus at work? What are my business associates going to say when they see a Bible propped up on my desk? What are my friends going to say whenever I start talking about Jesus? What is my family going to think about me if I start telling them about Jesus? 
it's not about what people think about me. This is about giving the life-giving, transformative power of Jesus to the people that God has put in our circles to be able to reach them for eternal glory, y'all. It's not about me. Listen, before you were saved, everything this church did, everything that churches did is about you. It's about how to reach you with the gospel. Everything every church is about, everything this church is about, is about reaching the next person that doesn't know Jesus with the gospel of Jesus to change their life and introduce that person to eternal life. If you're in this room and you do not know Jesus, we are about you today. Everything we do is about reaching you with the gospel. But those of you in this room that have been saved, you may be first-generation Christians, you may be 10th-generation Christians. At some point, somebody was faithful to share with somebody that shared with somebody that shared with somebody that shared with you how you could know Jesus as your Savior and have eternal life. Somebody was faithful to do that. And the moment that you accepted that, it became the church's responsibility to disciple and equip you to the point that you could become part of that church that is no longer about you, but it's about the next lost person that's going to walk in this door, the next lost person that you're going to bring in this door, the next lost person that you're going to have lunch with, the next lost person that you're going to sit beside at a ball game, the next lost person that you're going to meet in a conference room. You, this is no longer about me. This church doesn't exist for Jeremiah. This church is not about me anymore. This church is not about Pastor Allen or Pastor Will. This church is about the next lost person that's going to walk in this room so that we can introduce that person to Jesus, so that that person can know this life that we have. This person can know the joy that we have. They can know the hope that we have. It's not about me anymore. But tonight, tonight at about 3 or 3.30, I'm going to be sitting right back there at that computer getting ready for hype night. By the way, students, hype night is tonight. I encourage you to come. It's going to be a great time. Pastor Joseph's got some great stuff planned, as he always does. And I can trust that because he always does. I don't know what it is. There's going to be some great music here. Pastor Will's got it planned out. There's going to be a great message where we get to tell people about Jesus. There's going to be 40 or 50 people in the room that we're going to tell about Jesus. I got a secret to share with you, though. And students, hear me, all right? I like you. I like the individual students in the room. I do not like student ministry. It does not appeal to me at all. I, some parts of it, I just don't get it. Okay, that's why I'm super thankful we have a Joseph Baker on staff to do student ministry because he is really good at it and he really enjoys it. And I think he is phenomenal at reaching our students. So why am I involved in it? It's not because I enjoy it. It's because there's needs. We need tech to be done. We need sound to be done. We need music to be ready. And those are needs to help this ministry be as healthy as it can be because church we need a healthy student ministry if we're going to be a healthy church we need a healthy children's ministry if we're going to be a healthy church we need a healthy men's and women's ministry if we're going to be a healthy church all of these ministries have to be healthy and I have things that I can do the Lord has put me in a place to be able to meet certain needs to make these ministries successful because church there are people that are going to be sitting in these chairs tonight at 5 o'clock. In four years, there's going to be missionaries in Tuscaloosa and Auburn and Huntsville and Starkville and Florence and Decatur and Athens 
and wherever else the Lord sends these kids. They're going to be missionaries on their college campuses, shedding the light of Jesus to a, a captive audience of people from all over the world that are going to be on those campuses. They're going to be missionaries. In 10 to 15 years, the people sitting in these chairs tonight, where you're sitting right now, they're going to be children's directors. They're going to be worship leaders. They're going to be student pastors. They're going to be church planters. I pray they're going to be missionaries to the uttermost parts of the world. In five or six years, my son's going to be sitting in one of those chairs. And then my daughter. And then my other daughter is going to be sitting in one of these chairs, needing someone, some team of people to introduce her, to teach her how to be a disciple, to teach him how to grow, to teach her how to share Jesus on her campus, to teach her how to share Jesus with her bandmates, to teach him how to share Jesus with his sports teammates, to teach her how to, teach, to share Jesus with her classmates, to teach her what it looks like to serve, to teach her what it looks like to grow, to teach her what it looks like to lay aside ourselves and surrender ourselves completely to God. We need that ministry to be helpful, healthy and helpful to our kids. And I don't have to like being a part of it because I don't have any kids in it. It doesn't matter because it's too important. It's too important for me to sit on my preferences and say, I'd rather not be there. I'd rather be watching cars go in circles tonight at 6 o'clock. But it's not about me. It's about what God is doing in the life of our church and what God is doing where he sends and where he leads us. See, one final thought that I have, I don't have to understand everything God is doing. I don't have to understand everything God is doing, but I just need to trust what God is doing. As God moves me as his checker piece around that board, I don't have to understand why he's putting me where he's putting me. All I have to do is be obedient and go exactly where he puts me, go exactly where he sends. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, and we'll wrap it up. The Lord says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You see, when we try to understand what God is doing, when we try to predict God's next move, we're getting off base. We just need to understand, just like Jonah needed to understand, that what God is up to it may not be about where I'm at. Sure, there was lostness in the northern kingdom of Israel. He would have been happy to stay there and preach to them. God already sent eight or nine other prophets. He had them lined up. He was going to send to teach them a message. It may not be about right now. There may be no immediate benefit to the work that God is calling us to do. And it might not be anything about me. It might be for the next generation that's going to come behind. It might be for something he has lined up 200 years from now that we can't possibly see. But God has us as important parts of his plan. And I want to encourage everyone in here, submit to God's plan. Submit to where God will lead you. Follow where God would send you. Because let's let it all be about him. And let it all be about where, what he has to do in our lives. With every head bowed and every eyes closed. Man. I just want to encourage everyone so much to follow God. We can trust Him. We can trust what God is doing. I can trust what God is doing in my life, and you can trust what God is doing in yours. And so I encourage you to be a part 
be a willing part. Don't sit on the sidelines, but let God use you. Let's put aside the excuses. Let's put aside the distractions, and let's be solely focused on God Almighty. And if you're in this room and, and you're one of those that would say, you know what, I have not yet said yes to God's very first request for me to be a part of his kingdom, for me to be saved, to experience that life that, that you've been talking about for the last 30 minutes. Come down and talk to us. We've got people here. We've got counselors that would be happy to share with you, delighted to share with you about the same joy that we have, how you can know that joy, how you can know that life, that hope. Those of you watching online, same invitation. Get plugged in. Get involved in whatever context that is. And if you don't know Jesus, let today be the day that you get that relationship right. God, be glorified in this room. Bring about life change. Bring about salvation. Bring about hope. I pray that you will help us to see you in your glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing. Listen, if God is speaking to you, Come up right now and let's talk about how you can get plugged into what God is doing here.